Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Sorry, I didn't check the page number, but um, if you didn't bring a Bible, there should be a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs nearby so you can grab uh, one of those and follow along uh, with the reading. Luke 4, 16 through 21 is the text that I'm going to be reading. Uh, There was, uh, back in 2014, it's been almost 10 years now, but there was a a Newsweek article um, about the scriptures, and uh, the article said this, no television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician. Neither has the Pope. Neither have I, and neither have you. At best, all we have is a bad translation, a translation of translations of translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies, and on and on hundreds of times. Is that true? Uh, This is something that you see in secular news magazines quite often. You know, they they like to do this. Time and Newsweek put out these articles that are designed to rattle the faith of Christians by undermining the authority of the Bible with exaggerated and baseless claims. And I want to try to demonstrate here today that that's exactly uh, what you heard. And we're going to approach this issue... Uh, from the perspective of the ending of the book of Mark. You know, if you've been here for any time, that for the last almost two years we've been going through the book of Mark, and we've, we've pretty much finished it. Um, but, but you'll remember that when we got to the very last passage in Mark, that is chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, I didn't cover that. Why not? Well, <clears throat> I know I told you to turn to to Luke chapter 4. Well, actually, I have it on the screen, so you don't need to turn back there quite yet. But um, <clears throat> in our English Bibles, when we get to Mark 16, 9 through 20, you, you will see notes like, like this. And so maybe you, you notice this. In the ESV, it says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 16, 9 through 20. In the NIV, it says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. New Living Translation, the most reliable early manuscripts conclude the Gospel of Mark at verse 8. So this is no secret, it's right there in your Bibles. I think every single translation has some note of this kind when we get to what is called the long ending of Mark. Verses 9 through 20, it's called the long ending. And when you see a note like that, you might... um, Think of something like that Newsweek article and kind of wonder if maybe there's something to what they're saying. I mean, do we have reliable English translations in our hands? Are our Bibles corrupted and distorted over the years so that we really don't know what God thinks about anything? Is it true we really haven't read the Bible? Like the Newsweek article says, I, I want to show you today here, friends, and want to assure you and want to encourage you that we do have good translations. Our Bibles are reliable, 
everything necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation and how to live a godly life is reliably presented to us and preserved for us in the scriptures. That's what I want to uh, show you today. Um, so <clears throat> the nature of the sermon is going to be a little different than normal. You know how we like to just unpack a, a passage, just sit down in a text and um, open up the details. We're going to be kind of jumping around in various places to make uh, the, uh, the argument today. And so rather than reading from the end of Mark 16, I, I want to read from Luke 4 because this addresses uh, the point that I'm going to be uh, making today. Uh, by the way, next week we're going to be starting a new series, God willing, uh, on the life of Jacob. So we left off in Genesis a few years ago at the end of the life of Abraham, and we're going to pick up with the life of Jacob and learn about this uh, kind of misfit in God's redemptive plan. If there's one guy's life you look at and you think, how could this guy really be saved? It's Jacob. I mean, what a, a rascal that guy was. But he is just a great example of how God's grace extends to all sorts of misfits in this world and that God delights to use unpredictable people for his purposes. So Life of Jacob, that'll start next week. But one more sermon now on Mark. So if you're able to stand, please do so. Uh, but I will read from, from Luke 4, 16 to 20. Okay, so it says this. And he, that's Jesus, Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Holy Spirit, we acknowledge we need you to open our eyes and hearts to behold the wonderful things that you have reserved for us in your scriptures. So do that now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> All right, so more of a topical kind of sermon here today. Again, we'll be kind of jumping around and I typically like my main points to be kind of short and punchy because it's easier to follow, easier to follow. Today, again, is a little different. Uh, our, our topic's a little bit complex, and so uh, the main points are a little longer that I think is necessary to, um, to, to explain uh, the point I'm trying to make. So the first thing I, I want you to see is this. Here's what I want you to know. First of all, our Bibles today are compiled from copies of ancient manuscripts. Okay? <clears throat> Our Bibles, the English Bibles we have, are compilations from copies of ancient manuscripts. So here's how it works. Let's just kind of think back. Let's think of Mark as an example. Mark, the writer of the gospel uh, back in the early 60s or so A.D., and, and Mark writes his, his gospel, all 16 chapters, and 
Um, we know what Jesus said in the Great Commission. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So Christians in that first century, they're, they're eager to fulfill the Great Commission. They want everybody to know about Jesus and how to be saved and how to believe in him and obey him. And so um, how does that happen? How did the Great Commission happen? Most of the time we just think of a missionary going out and proclaiming the gospel in different places, and of course that did happen. But a- another way this happened is that the, the letters of the New Testament that Mark and Paul and others were writing were, were distributed and sent out to the churches in the area. So for instance, if we look at uh, Colossians 4.16, <clears throat> this is what Paul commands to the church in Colossae. When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the the Laodiceans. So it's read in the church of Colossae. When you get done, make sure it gets to this other church and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So what Paul is saying is, I want these letters, these inspired, inerrant letters under God's Spirit to be distributed among the church for all the Christians to read. Now, How would that happen, do you think? I mean, let's just think practically what would have happened. Do you think there was just like one manuscript that Paul wrote, and then he just sent it to one church, and then all the other churches had to wait until they were done, and then it would go to the next church, and the other churches had to wait until they were done, and it just went all throughout the world like that? I mean, is that the way it worked? I mean, there were generations of people who would have died before they ever received the letter if that's the way it worked. They didn't have just one copy. What happened is a scribe or a copyist would come along and sit down next to the letter that Paul wrote or the letter that Paul or that Mark wrote, and he would copy it word for word by himself onto a document that could then be distributed. You know, they didn't have Kinkos at the time. Uh, they couldn't just scan it on their computer and email it out. The only way to get a copy was to do the hard work of taking pen and paper, so to speak, and copy it word for word, and that's what what happened. Copyists would make these copies, and when these copies were made, they were called manuscripts. Now, the material that was used for the copying (coughs) of these letters was called papyrus. Papyrus is the word from which we get our English word paper. And papyrus was a plant in Egypt, and they would take this plant and they would cut the stalk of the plant into thin strips and lay them together, and then they would write on these papyrus strips, and that would be the manuscript. That's what would be distributed from church to church. Later on, hundreds of years later, they began using vellum. Vellum would be like animal skins, and animal skins were uh, a little more durable, than papyrus. One of the problems with papyrus is that it was not durable at all. It was a very fragile material. And so you can imagine what was happening when you had these papyrus documents copied over and over again by copyists and then sent to various other churches. They're handled by multiple people and then sent on to another church, on and on. What happened is these papyrus manuscripts just wore out. Some of them got lost. They'd get destroyed. They'd break up into pieces. And the result is that all of the original manuscripts 
that the writers of the New Testament wrote, Mark's gospel, Paul's letters, they're all lost. We don't have them. We do not have the original manuscripts of the scriptures. Now, if you're thinking, oh man, Bob's going off. Is he turned into a liberal or something? What's he doing? He's trying to undermine the scriptures here. But friends, this is not a debatable thing. It's not like this is a matter of opinion. This is just the truth. We don't have the original manuscripts. Now, for some people that might be uh, troublesome, but there is no reason, friends, for you or me to be troubled by this. Because, for a number of reasons, one reason is because this is the same thing that is true for all other ancient writings at the time of the Bible. All other contemporary writings that went on in the first century in Latin and Greek, all the originals of, of, of those writings are also lost. They're all written on papyrus. They're not, we're not written on durable materials. But guess what? There are lots of other documents where the originals are lost. Have you ever heard of the Gettysburg Address? Abraham Lincoln, 1863, <clears throat> one of the most famous speeches given in American history. We don't have the original. It's lost. Do we wonder what Abraham Lincoln really said? No, we don't. We have full confidence in the Gettysburg Address. And uh, I want to show you from the Scriptures that actually the Bible itself affirms the reliable use of copies for us to understand God's Word. So the passage I just read to you was Luke chapter 4, right? Jesus comes into the synagogue, and it was common practice for guests to read in the synagogues. The synagogues didn't have like a local pastor or a minister of some sort. It would just depend on whoever happened to be there, the guest preacher. So Jesus comes in, and there's an attendant, and the attendant gives him this uh, scroll of Isaiah, and uh, Jesus reads it. Now, that uh, Isaiah portion would have been written 700 years before this time, okay? So, Jesus is reading from a document written 700 years earlier. Do you think Jesus, when he was reading that scroll, was reading the original document that Isaiah wrote? Let's say no. He's reading a scroll. He's reading a copy and after he reads it, how does he identify it? He says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's a copy, and yet he refers to it as scripture. He refers to it as fully authoritative. He refers to it as fully sufficient to point him out as the Messiah who is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. So, Jesus was perfectly happy to use a copy when he read that scroll in Luke chapter 4. But he, here is um, another example. Uh, here is uh, Deuteronomy 17. So here is a command to the king of Israel. And it says, And when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes. So here what God is saying is the king is going to make a copy, and that copy of the law, not the original copy, but the copy is now going to be sufficient for him to 
learn how to fear the Lord and keep all of his words for the entire duration of his life. The copy is sufficient. He didn't have to have uh, the uh, law written by God himself. Um, so the point that I'm trying to make here, friends, is that we shouldn't be alarmed about the fact that we don't have the original copies. It, it, it's okay. It's okay. Um, it, do you know that in Washington, D.C., there is like a platinum bar that is the um, kind of the authoritative foundation on which all of our measuring devices are, are based? our rulers and our tape measures. It's based on a, a platinum bar. There's this original authoritative um, device that, that, that is the foundation for all of these measuring devices. Um, how, how do you think it would change our ability to measure things if that platinum bar got lost? I mean, would somehow we, would just, we wouldn't be able to tell how tall anybody was anymore. You know, we could never measure a basketball goal 10 feet high because, ah, that platinum bar in D.C. is gone. Well, no, that's ridiculous, isn't it? We could still use our tape measures. We could still use our rulers. We could still use all of our measuring devices with full confidence that they're giving us accurate measurements, knowing they're based on an authoritative standard and foundation, whether that foundation exists or not. And in fact, in Britain, their equivalent, that actually happened once. They lost for a while their kind of platinum bar. I think it got returned, but that happened for a, a, a brief time. Um, so uh, let's not be troubled by the fact that we don't have the originals. Now, now here's, here's the difficulty, though. Um, <clears throat> here's what happened as we go back to think about the early first century and how these... Uh, copies were made. Let, let, let's imagine you've got 10 people making a copy of the book of Mark. Okay, the book of Mark is there, 10 people in a room, and they're all copying it word for word. Are we then going to have 10 copies of Mark that are exactly the same? Copying the entire book of Mark? The answer is no. What, why? It's just, there's going to be, there's going to be little discrepancies here and there. I mean, these copyists are going to copy some things wrong. And when they copy those things wrong, the word for that is a variant. And <clears throat> what a lot of the kind of liberal biblical scholars like to point out is that there are thousands of variants among the manuscripts that we have. And that is true. There are thousands of variants. Um, should that cause a problem for us? I want to say no. Shouldn't worry you. Shouldn't rattle you. Um, for one reason, the, the variants are mostly very minor, very trivial. So, for instance, if you look at the screen here, you have to look carefully at the way these are worded. The, the, these are the kinds of variants that are found in the manuscripts most often. Letters switched out. You know, whoops, put a B in there instead of a D. One word replaced by another one. Different use, different, different words sounding the, the same. Uh, words might skipped. <laughs> Whoops, forgot to put the, the B in. Or on the other hand, words might be doubled. Or you might have like uh, a phrase, it might say in one manuscript, a apple, and then in another manuscript it says an apple. 
the huge majority of the variants are that way. See, the liberals, they'll say thousands of variants, like there's all sorts of variances about whether Jesus is God or how it is to be saved. That's not the truth. It's misleading. Tiny, trivial variants. But in any case, I mean, isn't it true that, you know, if you have um, 10 different copies of the book of Mark and you find that a couple are variants, one of the blessings of having a whole bunch of different manuscripts is what do you do? Well, you go look and see what the other manuscripts say. So one has a variant, nine don't. Is there any question about what the actual reading is? One was wrong, nine got it right. The number of manuscripts actually helps us a lot. I mean, just as a way of another illustration, let's say you had a pumpkin pie recipe and it's your favorite pie, and you give it to your neighbors, and you give it to your friends, and so they all copy it. And so now you've got 10 of your friends with your pumpkin pie recipe, and then you lose it. Is your pumpkin pie gone forever? Well, of course not. What do you do? You go to your friends, you get those 10 copies, and you compile an accurate representation of the original, and the pumpkin pie tastes just as good as it always did. Nothing is lost. So these variants should not worry us. Our Bibles today, however, to be clear, in this first point, are compiled from copies of ancient manuscripts. Now, I would be misleading you if I were to say that all the variants are very trivial and small, because there are some exceptions. And Mark 16, 9 through 20, the long ending of Mark, is the longest variant in the whole New Testament. And so it's, it's the biggest problem. <laughs> and that's why you have those notations in your scriptures. And so uh, the second thing that I want to show you is, is this. The long ending of Mark is not supported by the oldest manuscripts. And that's just what these notes are saying. So um, so, uh, some more look background here. The, the manuscripts we have, the manuscript copies of the uh, original New Testament, the ones we have were mostly written between 200 and 1200 uh, A.D. The, the very oldest of these manuscripts is one that's called P46. And uh, they got all these really cool names for all these, these manuscripts. P just stands for papyrus, P46. Um, P46 uh, was written about 200 A.D., and it has a number of excerpts from the letters of Paul, some from 1 Corinthians, from Romans. I think there's some of uh, Hebrews there. It's the oldest manuscript we have, 200. And guess what? This is, is being kept up at the University of, of Michigan. So, Dan, Dan's happy about that, being a Michigan fan. Oh, we can go right up the road, and you can go see this thing, I guess. I don't know if they make it available, but um, I think part of it is, is somewhere else, but some of it is up in, in Ann Arbor. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, what's been going on is you have archaeologists who have been searching for centuries for these kinds of, of manuscripts. And between the 16th and 19th centuries, there was like an explosion of discovery of manuscripts. Before like the 1500s, we hardly had any. Now we just have, we have tons of manuscripts. And these archeologists would find them in all kinds of places. They'd be found in caves sometimes. They'd be find, found uh, buried in the sand. 
Sometimes they would be found in trash heaps, copies of the New Testament in a trash heap. Um, <clears throat> today, very often, how they are found is they're in libraries because certain um, documents will be donated to a library, and the librarians just take it and kind of you know, put it somewhere to store it, and they don't even open it. They don't have time to open everything and look at every page. But archaeologists will go into these libraries and start digging through these ancient manuscripts, and they'll find part of the New Testament in there. And so that's the way manuscripts are mostly discovered today. Uh, the ones discovered in, in, uh, in, in caves and in the sand, mostly in, in Egypt and in the Middle East uh, area. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes the discoveries will be very, very small. Sometimes they'll be just the size of a postage stamp, very tiny bit of a New Testament manuscript. But we do have uh, a couple of manuscripts that are the entire New Testament. Uh, it's called Codex Sinaiticus. It is one, the entire New Testament from Matthew to Revelation um, <clears throat> in one codex document. Uh, but but here, here is the basic principle. The reason I'm telling you all of this is because the older the manuscript, the better. That's the principle. The older the manuscript, the, the better. So for the first several centuries, we'd have certain uh, manuscripts discovered, but as time has gone on, we've been able to discover more that are older. And the reason the older are better is because they're closer to the original. If they're closer to the original, there's less time for corruption and distortions to develop. So the older, the better. What the notes in your English Bibles are telling you, and as I put on the screen a moment ago, is that that long ending in Mark is not found in the oldest manuscripts. And so that's why they're saying I'm not so sure about it. It's not in the best manuscripts. So there's, there's two kind of categories when people examine these ancient manuscripts. There's external and internal evidence. So um, what I'm talking to you about right now is external evidence. That is evidence that is outside the text of, 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 the, of the Scripture, like the manuscripts that are being discovered. Um, but there are other kind of kinds of external evidence. For instance, when we read some of the very early church fathers like Clement and Jerome and Eusebius in Origen, Eusebius was the chief uh, church historian in the early centuries of the church, all of those guys say there's nothing after verse 8 in Mark. Verses 9 through 20 aren't there. Even when it is there, and some of the manuscripts where verses 9 through 20 are there, very often the scribe would write a little note in the column saying, yeah, we're not so sure about verses 9 through 20. So even when it is included, there is doubt expressed about its authenticity. So, so that's one of the big reasons why. Now, now, there are some early church fathers who said that it, it is there. And so it is, you know, it is a debatable thing, and that's probably why it's included in, in our Bibles even though it's bracketed. But that's external evidence, which seems to argue against the authenticity of the long ending. But there's also internal evidence. That, that is, there are, um, there are details of the text itself. If you want to turn quickly to, to Mark 16, 9 through 20, I'll, I'll point a couple of these out. Um, there are certain things about the text that cause scholars to doubt whether it is authentic. So, um, for instance, in verse 9, 
Uh, it says, now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. And so the scholars say it's like in this verse 9, Mary Magdalene is being introduced. It's like he's saying, you know, we have to tell who she is. She's the one from whom seven demons were cast out. But friends, go back to 16.1. Mary Magdalene's already been mentioned. Or you go back to verse 1547, Mary Magdalene's already mentioned. And, and so, and yet in 16.9, it's like, oh, we got to tell them who Mary, see, but the idea is that Mark wouldn't do that. If Mark had written this, he wouldn't be reintroducing Mar Mary Magdalene because he knew he already mentioned her. That, that's an internal evidence argument against the authenticity of the long ending. Uh, so you also have like... Um, you know, this, uh, this stuff in verses 17 and 18 about, um, well, verses 18 in particular, picking up serpents with their hands, and, and if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Uh, let me just say, don't try that at home, okay? Um, <laughs> this, it's not a command, actually. It's not really worded as a command. It's kind of saying that, uh, that this is what's going to happen. But it just seems very uncharacteristic of Mark's writing and the Gospels, uh, the other Gospels. Um, it, it seems out of line with uh, how we would expect Mark to write. You know, if Edgar Allan Poe wrote something, for instance, and then maybe an ending was lost, and Ernest Hemingway came along and added an ending, <laughs> you know, people who are familiar with those writers would look and say, that ending does not sound like Poe. That sounds like Hemingway. <laughs> you know, there's a difference in style. And, you know, it's hard for us to see it because we have these English versions. Uh, but in the Greek, for instance, there's a lot of extra Greek words used in 9 through 20 that aren't used throughout the rest of Mark. It'll be another internal evidence. Scholars say it just doesn't seem like it fits. So we might ask, well, then why is there this long ending? Why, why does it exist? And the reason that is often given is if you go back to verse 8, uh, what does it say there? They went out and fled from the tomb after Jesus was risen, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. End of the book. And a lot of people say, that just seems so abrupt. Like there's no real conclusion. It just stops. Uh, and so people say, well, maybe Mark died, actually, before he could finish it. Others say, well, maybe Mark had a longer ending, but that longer ending got lost. What scholars say is that probably what happened is there was a scribe copying this book. He saw this verse 8 and said, this doesn't look like a proper ending, and so added these additional verses 9 through 20. That's kind of the, the common belief. Um, but I don't think we have to to go there. I, I think we can say that verse 8 actually is, is the end. There are many mentions in the book of Mark of people being afraid around Jesus. There's like six or eight times that Mark points this out, that people in the presence of Jesus are just overwhelmed with fear and trembling when they realize they're in the presence of the God-man. And now they have just witnessed something that is the most extraordinary thing they've ever seen, that the man who was killed and put in a tomb is not there anymore. And the tomb is empty, and they're stunned. And perhaps what Mark wants us to feel is that same kind of astonishment with the end of his book. 
He wants to leave us stunned with the resurrection of Jesus. And perhaps he's also asking a question. Are you going to live in fear now? Are you willing to take up where Mark left off? Take up your cross and follow him and fulfill the great commission knowing that he is resurrected from the dead? I mean, there are reasons, I think, that we can see why Mark might have ended the letter there. Uh, I, I don't think there's any need to add anything uh, to it. So, um, those are the reasons given for verses 9 through 20 not being, not being authentic. There's nothing heretical in here. Uh, so, you know, I don't think we have to be too worried about it. A lot of the stuff in here actually is repeated in other Gospels, and so to that degree, you know, we, we still accept it as God's Word. I wouldn't go around building any new doctrines on the stuff we find in verses 9 through 20, like, hey, let's go be snake handlers, and let's go drink poison and see what happens. Wouldn't do that. Okay, the, 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 these are, I think, not, not authentic. So that leads us to the third point. Second point, long ending of Mark, not supported. Uh, so again, not, not trying to rattle anybody's confidence in the scriptures. I want you to leave with this. You can have full confidence in the reliability of your Bible because of the quality of the ancient manuscripts. You can have full confidence in the scriptures because of the kind and number of manuscripts that, that we have. But the first thing I want to remind you is what the Bible itself says about God's word. Remember what it says in Isaiah 40? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's not going anywhere. can't be lost. Uh, Jesus says this in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. If the Newsweek article is correct, if somehow we have lost God's word, then these are both false claims. And we know that God cannot lie. We know that God's word is reliable. And so we need to remember these passages that affirm the enduring trustworthiness of the scriptures. God's word will not be lost. It is contained in our English translations. But uh, here are um, the two things I want to show you. One uh, is the 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 number of manuscripts demonstrates the quality of the evidence that we have for the reliability of, of the Bible. I mentioned to you that the age of the manuscripts is very important for determining that, but also the number of manuscripts we have supports their authenticity and reliability. So, we have about 5,700 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Uh, some of them, as I said earlier, are partial. Some of them are whole. But, of course, the New Testament was written in many other languages, Aramaic and Syriac. New Testament manuscripts in other languages are somewhere between 20 and 25,000. Now, the reason those numbers are so impressive is if we compare this to the average number of ancient manuscripts written in other forms, other authors, other Greek and Latin authors of their day, the average number of manuscripts that we have for them, wait for it, 20. About 20. It's about a thousand times more manuscripts available for the New Testament than in any other writing. And so uh, a guy named uh, Eldon Epp says this, we have a genuine embarrassment of riches in the quantity of manuscripts we possess the writings of no Greek, Greek classical author are preserved on this scale. 
that, that, that's just huge. The, the New Testament just blows every other document out of the water in terms of the number and the age of manuscripts that we have. But also, uh, it's the purity of the manuscripts as well. Um, here's one thing to remember, friends, is that among all of the textual variants that are found in these ancient manuscripts, not one essential Christian doctrine is called into question. That there is no, none of the essential precious doctrines that we believe in and cherish as Christians and as we celebrate in the gospel, none of them is, is affected. Greg Gilbert says this, not a single doctrine of Orthodox Christianity depends solely on a question portion of the biblical text. Either the question portions don't involve anything truly interesting, or if they do, the very same doctrines expressed in those locations are taught elsewhere in unquestioned portions of the Bible. So you might have one manuscript that says Jesus, and then you might have another that says the Lord but no manuscript is denying that Jesus is the Lord. <laughs> it might differ in that way, but it's not a substantial difference in any way. Friends, everything that we cherish, again, as Christians, the, the fact that God created the universe, the fact that he has entered our world in the person of Jesus in the incarnation, the, the, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, uh, his atoning death on the cross to pay for our sins, his bodily resurrection from the dead, precious doctrines like justification by faith and not by works that we're saved only by trusting in what Jesus has done, not in anything that we do. None of these doctrines is affected by any of these variants. They are all so clear and unanimously testified to that there is no question in any of our minds when we read the Bible about how to be saved. And there is no question in any of our minds how to live a life pleasing to God. It's so clear, friends. We need a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. So call on His name and be saved. That's not questioned or undermined in any way. Uh, and so many things added to that about how to be Faithful Christians. Friends, let, let me just close by this. Do, do you know when you hold the Bible in your hands, you are holding a treasure. You are holding something that not everybody has had the opportunity to hold in their hands. Do you know how many countless people in the world don't have a Bible? Do you know how many countless people in the world before our time, before there was a printing press, never read a Bible? Never had a chance to lay eyes on it? Do you know how much more accurate our English Bibles are now than they have ever been? What you have in your hands is something that is worth more than gold and silver. You have something in your hands that is sweeter than honey. Value your Bibles, friends. What, what a blessing to have a Bible. What a greater blessing to read your Bible. And study your Bible. Know your Bible and be, way, be made wise for salvation uh, through faith in the Christ that our Bible tells us about. Let's pray. Lord, um, God, we, we thank you that you, Lord, in your providence and mercy have preserved your word for us over the years. And um, 
Father, uh, I pray for those who are doing the work of textual criticism, examining manuscripts and, and getting us the most accurate translations, translations possible. Thank you for their work. Um, Father, I pray that you'd give us all renewed devotion and passion and commitment to your word. We thank you that we live in a day and age when the revelation of Jesus Christ has made so clear to us. Thank you for that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.